the title is not meant to make you nervous. If this is your first Sunday here, it's my first Sunday here too. We have that in common. But uh, if you were here last Sunday, my understanding is that for those of you that love this place and choose to call this your church home, you're having a bit of a difficult conversation these days. You're in a bit of a transition, and that can feel like tension. What I would want you to know beyond what I do now is that I left a church due to clergy abuse a couple of years ago and then took a job at the meeting house. <sighs> If you know, you know. <laughs> I am not unfamiliar with sitting in the tension and also believing that God's plan for his kids is a good one. His plan, called the church, is a very good plan. You are very good people who love and serve a very good God. And my gracious, there are a lot of you leaning into the tension right now. When I think about what this church has, you are very, very wealthy in family. And so it is with acknowledgement of where you are and where you hope to go that I get to stand in the gap for a few minutes with you this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you are, you are our living hope. We love you. We honor you. And we choose to obey you, even when it doesn't make sense, even in the tension. And so would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. So take a deep breath, because <laughs> I said tension, and now you're all wearing your shoulders like earrings. And so just take a deep breath. And just think about for a minute what complications this season holds for you. Whether you're a parent and you don't currently have a kid's pastor. I mean, you do have a Tony. And so if there's anyone that would rather go listen to him talk more, I don't blame you. I think he went that way. That was amazing. So there are complications that this season will hold for you as you navigate what you have and what you don't have. And so just take mental note of what complications this holds for you because we're going to talk about this tension that we experience in seasons of transition. When we say the word hope, the question I would ask you is what are you holding on to? I can see that you're holding on to each other. This is a beautifully full room. It's half as full as it was a few minutes ago, which is like, I mean, I could cry. That's just gorgeous. But I would ask you, what are you holding on to? What hope do you, do we profess, affirm, confess, and claim to have? It isn't dandelion fluff. It isn't birthday candles. That's not the hope we have. But sometimes we can use the word that way. What's really interesting to me about the word hope is actually how it shows up in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to take like a speedway travel through the book of Hebrews backwards, because I can. And we're going to talk about what the word hope actually means in the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is unique in the New Testament because it was written in Hebrew for the Hebrews, 
And these were the Jewish believers in Jesus. Now, my mentor is a Messianic Jew, and she would say that this group of people is twice persecuted. The Jews rejected them, and the Gentile followers of Jesus rejected them. They were their own people group experiencing a particular persecution, and they were looking for anything they could to hold on to in a season of particular tension. So the rope that we're going to talk about hanging on to actually is found in the word tikva. Tikva is the word for hope found in the book of Hebrews. It's found all throughout the Old Testament as well. But we're going to take a look at the definitions of the word hope and then lean into what I think the author was trying to tell us in the book of Hebrews. Now, the dictionary.com definition, you know where all truth lives on the internet. Um, The dictionary definition of hope is that feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. So there's a tension in that there's an expectation. So as a verb, it's to look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence. Huh. If you use it with an object, it's to feel that something desired may happen. Now, here's what's in- interesting about the Hebrew word tikva. It also has a twin. Now, this is often true in the Hebrew language. Tikva means hope. It also means rope. Of course, they didn't know it would rhyme in English. That's just convenient. The thing about the word rope, though, it's not quite as simple as just naming the rope. Tikva actually means the tension the cord holds. So it's not just the rope, but it's also tense expectation. It's bound up in the fact that it's a rope. So when we say hope, there is this tense expectation that comes with it in the word. Yechal is another word for hope that we see in the Old Testament. It means waiting. There's usually anticipation and waiting locked up in hope. In Psalm 39.7, that would probably be the most familiar reference where David says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Usually you are waiting for God when you use the word yechal. In the Greek, Elpis is the word. I'm a word nerd. I should have prefaced this. I should have just set you up better. I love the etymology of words, and I think it helps us go a little further, deeper, longer with what God has woven into his word. Greek, it also means expectation, trust, and confidence to anticipate with pleasure and to welcome. Now, that seems right because you don't hope for something that you really don't want to happen. That's not hope. That's dread. In the Gospels, we see El Peace is always attached to a person, so it's very similar to Yechal. And in fact, that person is the risen Jesus. So in the Gospels, we see El Peace attached to Jesus. Now, I'm not just a word nerd, I'm just a nerd. So when I started looking at the idea of what this means, rope, and if you look through the book of Hebrews, there's also words like anchor, there's this metaphor of sailing, which of course is useless to me having grown up in this region, because, well, 
boats aren't common and we're landlocked. So, and I've never been on a boat in the Great Lakes really until recently, and no one would ever let me drive one. That would be ridiculous. And so I started doing a YouTube search of like, well, what does an anchor do and how does it work and how do you choose one and why rope, why chain and all those things that I never needed to know. But what I want you to know about the rope attached to a boat or a ship is that it is what ties to the anchor, obviously. What it is matters, whether it's rope or chain, it's based on the anchor you choose, which is based on the boat that you're on. Now, the thing is about an anchor is that isn't what holds your boat in place. I mean, to some extent it does, but it doesn't actually bear any of the tension or the weight that keeps your boat from moving. The point of the anchor is that you throw it down in the right place and that there is a eight to one for rope or five to one chain or rope length to the ship and the rope itself holds the tension between the vessel and the anchor. The anchor grabs on, the boat floats and the rope holds that tension. It's the best picture I could come up with for what it means for that rope to hold the tension. If you've ever been to camp or had a mean gym teacher, you know that playing tug of war, at some point the other team lets go. It's preferable that the tension is held so that, you know, you don't fall over. The tension in a rope matters. And if we look at it a different way, um, this is uh, a chain and rope combination. What I found fascinating is once I saw Nylon Road, I found something else I didn't understand, so I deep dove into that. The cool thing about using nylon is that when you stretch a nylon rope, as the tension lets go, the nylon will always return to the previous shape. That's why you would choose nylon. It goes back to the way it was before the tension was in it. The catenary, of course, I heard there might be a physics teacher in the house, so now I'm in trouble because I'm out of my depth. No pun intended. The catenary is actually that length that isn't lying on the seabed. The part that lays on the seabed actually digs in over time and not only holds the tension, but also does the work of helping the anchor remain secure. My favorite discovery was something called a snubber because it's fun to say. And the snubber is the little bit of rope or chain that allows for the swag. Now, interestingly enough, you can see that this particular little boat is in a little deeper. The snubber, that is enough rope to hold the full tension of that entire chain length to keep the anchor from holding but not being dragged. That little bit somehow holds enough tension and gives enough swag to the length of the chain. Now, who cares? Well, I hope you do in a minute. What I want you to know is that the anchor will not prevent you from feeling the waves. That's not the goal of the anchor. That's not the point of the anchor. When we say that, you know, we are anchored, we are strong, when we read verses about anchor, the point of the anchor isn't to keep you from feeling the waves, it's to keep you from capsizing. Your boat doesn't go over when you're anchored. You will feel things. You will feel the tension as it pulls on that rope. You will feel the journey, but the anchor will hold you where you put it down. 
So I wonder where you feel the tension in this season. The anchor is secure, even when the rope is stretched to the full. So where do you feel the tension? As we dig into Hebrews, I want you to know that there are three perspectives for moving forward in the tension of any one season that I've found. There's the then and therefore, and if you've read the book of Hebrews or you love it as much as I do, you know the word therefore shows up over and over. In fact, that's how I learned to read it backwards. When you start with a chapter that says therefore, you know you've already missed the point. Therefore what? What came before it? There's now, today, and the not yet, the past protection of knowing where we've come from, the present direction of where we are today, and the future orientation, where are we going, and where do we choose to point the nose of the ship as we go together. It turns out that we actually need all three perspectives, according to the author of Hebrews. And you are at a place somewhere in the middle of your story, as a church, as a body, You are going to need an imagination for all three perspectives as you move forward together. And your kids will need to hear the stories in order to keep grabbing onto that rope too. Why are we here? Why is this? Why are you sad? Why are we doing this? Why is there always someone different at the front? What's going on? All of these questions, as we tell our communal story, your kids get to learn the inheritance and the legacy of this body that moves together. They need to be at the table today. They are your future. And they are the hope of the church in real time. That is my conviction as a kids pastor. So we're going to look at Hebrews backwards, but I want to start with the obvious. And that's that Hebrews 11 in kids ministry usually reads like this. And we often tell the stories of the Old Testament and the heroes of faith, the hall of heroes as we like to tell it, like superheroes. Like we imagine David with a cape and, you know, these amazing people that did ridiculous things. And we talk about these stories as if they're so intangible that our kids actually can't relate to them. We tell these stories as if they have a beginning, middle, and end, all of their own, and as if these people of Scripture actually actively signed up to be a superhero so that we would have something to point back to. And what I would want you to know is that they didn't know. They were just like you and me, and they said yes to God. I mean, what did Sarah do at 80 when she found out she was pregnant? What would you do if you found out you were pregnant at 80? She wasn't like, well, obviously. I mean, I've had this plan all along. She laughed. And what did people do? Well, Noah built a boat for 40 years. Whatever, Landlocked. Who's building an ark in their front lawn in Waterloo County right now? What did everybody else do? They laughed. It doesn't make sense. And in fact, none of their stories make sense in isolation from the greater arc of the story of God's narrative that says, I love you, I see you, I will protect you, I will save you, I am here for you, I'm with you. Noah's story doesn't stand alone. Sarah's story doesn't stand alone. It's one big story of God picking out people just like you and saying, I see you, come with me. Do as I do. And it's just one right next step at a time. He didn't tell Noah what was going to happen all at once. And what about that tabernacle? You know, Moses just gets this download of what they're supposed to build in the wilderness. That's ridiculous. And then manna, just like just showing up. Who saw that coming? 
these stories are evidence of faithfulness one step at a time where they knew where they had come and all they had was today and their hope was in a future that God promised. The thing about the then, now, and not yet perspectives is somewhere right in the center of that Venn diagram. There's a middle school teacher who's loving me right now with a Venn diagram. Right in the middle of that is obedience. When you find that sweet spot of this is where we've been, this is where we are, and I'm going to trust God for where we're going, that's called obedience. And obedience is just spectacularly curious in today's culture. It flies in the face of social norms, and it calls out to people around us that something is happening there. And it doesn't look like what everything else looks like. And my hope for you is that it looks like the kingdom, the kingdom now and not yet, the hope in a kingdom that Jesus will return and reign and that we get to participate in it in real time. And on the days when it doesn't look or feel like the kingdom, you sit on the border between the now and not yet and you look out and you go, it isn't supposed to be this way. And you know who sits beside you? Jesus. And he says, I know. I know. We're not there yet. And you just get to sit there with him. Until you say, okay, what now? Until you get up, and he gets up with you and says, okay, let's go. And you take one right next step. So in Hebrews uh, eleven thirteen, it's my favorite part of the book of Hebrews. <laughs> Sorry about the first few words, but all these people died, still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised that expectation, that confidence that's tied to hope. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for him. I chose this picture because I listened to a podcast with Annie F. Downs and Lauren Daigle a couple years ago, and Lauren talked about um, recording this ridiculous uh, music video uh, where she was in a, an entirely inappropriately light and fluffy gown on a mountain in Alaska. That's why I say inappropriate. I mean, I just don't even know how she could feel her face and sing at the same time. But she was on top of this mountain, this dr it's beautiful dress blowing, and she's singing Rescue. And she stops the video and says to the producer, let's go to that mountain instead, as one does. And she looks across and sees this mountain. And for whatever reason, she thinks the vista over on that side is going to give a better vantage point. And her producer stops and looks at her and says, do you know how long that would take? And she goes, but it's right there. The work of packing up, getting all the equipment, everything off that mountain, taking a helicopter over to that other mountain that was much higher, the altitude was much more difficult as far as oxygen is concerned. The work of that would have taken them two days. And she goes, but how can that be? It's right there. That is what Hebrews is all about. That is what hope looks like. It can be right there. But the work of getting to it, are you in for it? Are you willing to do the work of, can I get to it? What's true about that mountain is that it is established. It is not moving. It is available, and you can get to it. It just might take you longer than you think. 
Moving backwards through Hebrews, we get the only definition in all of scripture of faith. Kind of interesting that it only shows up once. But the definition we're giving is faith shows the reality of what we hope for and the evidence of things we cannot see. So faith and hope, two intangibles, are defined by the tangible. Evidence and reality. Cool, cool, cool. That's super easy to understand. Reality, confidence, assurance, substance, certainty. Those are the definitions. Evidence, assurance, conviction, and proof. That is how we're defining faith. It isn't dandelion fluff. It's tangible. In the face of the intangible of faith, where it's that mountain that takes two days to get to, and you're not sure it's worth it, faith is the confidence and evidence of what we hope for. The author goes on to say, it is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people, the Marvel superhero comic um, that I showed you earlier, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. We understand that. And what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. What we can see came from Nothing we could see. This is evidence. So if we go backwards again, we see this hope, this reality, this tangible faith that's been defined. Well, how did we get to the point that hope became tangible? Well, in Hebrews 10, we see, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Well, how do we know this? The Marvel superheroes, that's how. He did it for them. He did it all along. He did it for the disciples. He did it for Jesus. He does it for me. He does it for you. That's where the hope comes from. And it is a firm and secure anchor. Let us think of ways to motivate one another, the author says, to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together. Well done. As some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. So we have this confidence, this anchored hope, and we jump back to chapter 7, and he, the, the author is trying to explain to people that would have had a robust understanding of the priesthood of their people, and gets to this point where he says, yes, the old law requirement, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. I mean, that's strong. For the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Here's the thing. The law was meant to help God's people draw near to God. Guess what? That's who Jesus is. He took it on the full embodiment of all of that. He fulfills the law and says, draw near to me. I am your hope. Are you noticing how many times hope and confidence go hand in hand? It it doesn't say that we hope for confidence. It says that our hope is confident. We can be confident in the hope that we have. This confidence is not about mustering up the courage or conviction to do what needs to get done. It is the walking out of obedience and trusting that what Scripture says about all of these heroes, all of these normal people that were plucked out of their everyday life and actioned by God's own hand, that it's true that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is, and you are who he says you are. 
That is our living hope. It is by him and through him, Jesus Christ, that we draw near to God and we get to be who we were made to be. Going backwards again in 6, 19 and 20, the author says, This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. So hope has not only been defined as the rope, but also the anchor. And the thing about an anchor is you can't put it down in weeds. I mean, you can, but you'll probably lose your anchor because apparently you have to cut it off if it gets tangled in the weeds. You can't put it down on rock because it has nothing to grab onto. You have to know where you are, orient yourself, and drop the anchor where it can grab. And when you do, it is trustworthy for your soul. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary, that curtain that Jesus himself tore, that was torn by God's own hand the day that Jesus died. Jesus has already gone there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. Earlier in 6, we see our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. Not until God fulfills his promise for you, but actually just as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit the promises because of their faith and endurance. He's already setting us up for what we see in 11, the faith and endurance where they didn't receive what was promised before they died. And in three, we land at the place where the original thread of hope was planted into the story. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Christ as his son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we, you and me, are God's house. If we keep courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, 1 Peter 2 reminds us that we are living stones meant to what? Build a house of worship. Your whole job is to praise Your whole job is to bring delight to our Heavenly Father. Your whole job is to build up one another into one living body. If it was Lego, it wouldn't be a bucket of minifigures with all those parts. It would be a bunch of bricks that makes one giant Lego figure like at Disney Springs. One body, each playing a part. We are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Our hope in Christ. So what are you holding on to? Our hope, our tikva, the tension in the cord that we are grabbing onto as a community that has yet to set its course. Our hope has a name. In chapter 6, you might have noticed it, but it went from hope as an it to a he. Jesus is our living hope. What promises are you trusting? It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Evidence of things we cannot see. 
Usually faith shows up in a moment of obedience where there's a decision. And we see it in the even ifs and even whens of scripture. Esther said, if I die, I die. That was her even if. Daniel's friend said, even if God doesn't rescue us from the fiery furnace, we will serve no other. Jesus, the night before he dies, if this cup could be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. What's your if? Where's that sweet spot of obedience for you? The even whens, even when it doesn't make sense, even when I can't see where we're going, I'm going to trust that we will go together, even when I feel so alone. I'm telling you that the story of your if and your when is the legacy that your children inherit, the legacy of obedience that is found in the confidence of hope, the evidence of things we can't see, the reality of what we hope for. This is the story they will tell about how they know that God is good. So what is your even if, your even when? When your kids are asking questions, when they aren't sure, when Jesus doesn't feel like someone that's closer than a friend, when they haven't yet understood that he sent one better than himself, the advocate, the spirit that lives inside us collectively and individually when they're not there, what's your even if? Where do you point to in that sweet spot of obedience that says, even if I will serve no other? At the end of Hebrews 11, we're reminded that the even if for many of the Bible people, not characters, people that we like to point to, it says, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. What? And others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over des deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. God had something better in mind for us. Hope grows in the presence of belief. Hope is present in the middle of the story. You are in the middle of a story. You are setting a trajectory for the children that you love and you serve. And when you do that, you set a trajectory for the church that will be here when our kids are serving us. Jesus is present in the middle of the story. He isn't the punchline, and he isn't just the one who led us to this moment. He is present in and through all of us. So when you're looking at that mountain that you face with your kids, give it a name and decide how to proceed. That mountain is hope, and his name is Jesus. Because hope tends to shrink the mountain when it is rightly named. And on the edge of the rocky terrain, somehow a sprig of grass will sprout. So whether your hope is dim or it's the fire in your belly this morning, the map for this journey has been written to give you what you need to grow the hope that you already have as you walk to the, toward the one who is our living hope in community among you today with us this very moment. Amen.